The passage of scripture I'd like to study with you is found in Genesis 12. And the part we're going to be looking at is from the 10th verse through to the end, from verses 10 to 20. And we're going to pick up from last time when I spoke to you on the life of Abraham. Just to refresh our minds, from Genesis 11, verse 27, to chapter 12, verse 9, the scriptures record for us the calling of Abraham out of the city of Ur to a land which God had promised and given him. The Lord appeared to Abraham while he was still a pagan, and Joshua were told he was worshipping the gods of his father, and he spoke to him, he revealed himself to him with these words, which are found at the beginning of chapter 12, and verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There were these five great promises. And Abraham responded to the calling of the Lord in faith. He did as he was instructed. He left behind his home, his family, one of the greatest cities on earth at the time. One of the greatest three cities it was actually. And he moved eventually into a distant land. And that's the land of Canaan. And all this was despite the obvious and seeming impossibilities to these promises that there were from a human perspective. He and Sarah were both well past childbearing age, and beside that, Sarah was already barren. The land God had promised him was also inhabited by other people. There were the cruel and fearsome giants that we see later in Scripture that dwelt in the land of Canaan. Abraham was just another wandering nomad. There was little future evidence available to see how his name was going to be made great. Yet despite all these barriers, despite all that would make him doubt God's words, we see in these verses that Abraham did as he was commanded. Because God had spoken and that was enough for him to obey and to trust that it was as good as done. Just within these first few verses, we can see that Abraham is one of the great spiritual giants of the Bible. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, confirms this. What we're going to look at, though, from verse 20, from verse 10 rather to verse 20, is how this colossus of the faith also stumbled and tripped. He also had periods of backsliding. When life got tough and the promises of God seemed a distant reality. In our day and age of social media, the persona that people present to us is often a distorted reality of the truth. It's the image they would have us believe. I'll give you a famous example of what I'm trying to say. Um, Henry VIII divorced his fourth wife, Anne of Cleves, after six months because the portrait of her, which he had received in advance of their marriage, had not been 
entirely truthful. One could say that it had been a favourable distortion of the truth. But the scriptures are not like this. They are honest, they are fair, and they are balanced. God's word is something that can be relied upon. It can be trusted to be true. Abraham was this great man of faith. After the first ten verses of chapter 12, we're almost left wondering, how could any difficult be anything that seemed unsurmountable from a human perspective? How could he ever fall? How, could, how can we relate to this great man? But we're going to see that he also struggled with the same temptations and failings that plague us too. So we also have to be careful as we look at this not to gloat over his downfall either. Whether or not we like to admit it, in our sinful pride, as we raise ourselves up, we also like to see other people fall and have their standing reduced. This is a chapter, it's a warts and all chapter, and the main focus isn't so much on the man Abraham as on the Lord God, the one who leads and guides his people. And so the big idea of this passage is that we need to lift our eyes up from the man and to the God who is in control of all things. So we start by looking at a new trial for Abraham. This is our first point. And the settings for the trial of his faith are revealed in verse 10 of chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land. This was not just a slight shortage of food. The end of the verse tells us it was a severe famine. He was facing a situation where there were scarcely any crops or livestock to be harvested in the land. And neither was there any way or means of purchasing food. Unless a miraculous change in circumstances came around, then Abraham and his family and all the servants and people and surviving livestock that were with him faced the imminent prospect of death by starvation. A prospect in our lives of plenty that we barely ever have to consider, but many people do. Although saying that, with all that's been going on recently, perhaps people have had to think a little bit more seriously about this potential scenario of limited produce. But for Abraham, he was a long way further down the road than we are. The fearsome prospect of a long, painful, drawn-out death by starvation was a real and distinct possibility. And so we read, he took his family to Egypt. And this is the first mention we have of Egypt in the Bible. It's a place that will continue to be influential through much of biblical um, history and the narrative of the Bible. By the time he made this decision, though, he and his family would have been very hungry. They would have been in a poor state of health, no doubt, and they were probably reaching that tipping point where either they made the journey several hundred miles south into Egypt, or else they stayed put and eked out an existence for as long as they could and hoped for the best. Abraham, he travelled all through the promised land. From verses 5 to 9 we'd see he'd gone from north to south. And all the land appeared to be unaccommodating, hostile 
and barren. Here he was after the great promises of God had been made. And he couldn't even look after the few people that came with him. His wife was still barren, and the land appeared to be barren now too. After all that he'd given up, and after the trust he had displayed in the promises of God, surely we expect God to reward him and to bless him. And yet here he is facing this terrible situation. And doesn't this often seem to be the way in our experiences too? The Lord reveals his will and his plans for us. And we set off with high hopes and expectation of his great blessings. Yet, within a short while, how often are our presuppositions dashed? And we find ourselves in a situation which is a dire mess. It's so difficult. Our health is troubled. We lose our job. Or a relationship breaks down. And as the believer reflects on this, it can knock our faith off balance and cause us to doubt. Very often we have this expectation that if we do something big for God, then he will reward us. We've all heard of the Christian who refused to open his business on Sunday and we're told his business flourished. Or we all hear of the believer who stood against the crowd and won't dishonour God before marriage. And we hear how he was blessed with a lovely spouse and family. Or we've heard the stories of the Christian who refused to engage in some dishonest scheme at work. And they were blessed with material blessings. This is all very good psychology. But it's poor theology. And very often we confuse the two. God won't always prosper or deliver us like he sometimes does in his mercy and kindness. But our call to obey him, whatever the outcome for us, remains the same. Because we are led to do something for him does not mean that he has to do something for us. So it was in this period of great hardship that Abraham left the land of promise and went south to Egypt. Now, there's some contention amongst the commentators as to whether Abraham sinned by going into Egypt. Some suggest that Egypt, within the Bible, always stood for the fleshpots of the world, and with all the prospects of plenty that man can offer as an alternative to trusting in God. Others say, though, that he did what was natural. It was the natural thing to do. And there is nothing in this passage that condemns or suggests that Abraham was wrong for going to Egypt. He seems to have viewed it as a temporary measure. And for that reason, I do tend to agree with the commentators who say that it was a natural thing to do. This was, however, to be the precursor to his fall when he deliberately misled Pharaoh about Sarah being his wife. And so it's worth taking note of how often the carnal things of life, such as food, or the lack of it maybe, lead us to situations of temptation or doubting God. I don't need to tell you how a grumbling stomach can often make us irritable and bad-tempered. A grumbling spirit is often the foothold that Satan uses to weaken our faith with doubt and unbelief in God as we focus on the things of the world and not the things of God. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 16, 
verse 23, as he was rebuking Peter, he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offence to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. We focus on the things of the man, not the things of the world. And that's often what leads us into temptation. And you will recall how the Lord Jesus Christ experienced firsthand the wiles of the devil's attacks after he himself had fasted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Can you remember what his first temptation was? It's found in Matthew chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. And when he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then there followed two more temptations. But notice how the passage identifies for us the human weakness that Satan was trying to exploit in the perfect, sinless son of man. He was hungry. It was a vulnerability that the devil used to devastating effect elsewhere in the scriptures amongst God's people. In Numbers 11, verse 4 to 6, Moses is leading the Israelites through the wilderness towards the promised land. And we read from verse 4, Now the mixed multitude who were with them, now the mixed multitude who were among them, rather, yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlics. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Verse 10. Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses was also displeased. For this sin of unbelief, the Lord pronounced a judgment on the Israelites. He struck them down with a great plague, even as they chewed the meat which he later supplied for them. Verse 34, we read, So Moses called the name of that place Kibroth Hatavah, because, they were, because there they buried the people who had yielded to craving. Yet, the Lord can also use human need and the wilderness school to strengthen the faith of his people. Whether it was the deserts of Arabia where Paul was for three years or the Midian wilderness where Moses spent 40 years. In these hostile, barren environments where it's difficult to live, the Lord can use the insufficiencies to point to Christ. And such experiences in our life can be used to find his strength, to resist the devil by prayer and the word of God. And God can use our lack of things in this world to increase our dependency and faith on him. And so maybe this is a lesson for the days in which we find ourselves at the moment. As Abraham experienced this drought, because his head was down and not up, 
Perhaps this is what led him into the sin that we shall see as our, for our second point. Abraham's distortion of the truth. Genesis 12 verse 11 to 13. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. Abraham was about to enter this new country as an economic migrant. And it was a vulnerable position that made him very fearful. As a foreigner, he had less rights and privileges than those who were the natives. And that's still often the case today. Unscrupulous people will take advantage of those who have less rights and those who have less rights, those who are desperate, and they will take what little they have or can offer, because they are easy targets with little protection. And Abraham knew that he could potentially fall prey to such people who would take with basically an impunity what they wanted. And what troubled his thoughts the most was his wife, Sarah's beauty, which was obvious to all. Her beauty would make her desirable to unprincipled men, and the result of that would mean his life was in great danger. Again, as we know, the terrible modern-day sex trade, life is cheap to these people, and Abraham was well within his rights to feel anxious about this. He knew the promises God had given him, but he didn't know what to do in this situation that was facing him. He was living in a reality gap. That is the moment of time between the promise of God and its eventual fulfilment. And so, fearing he would be murdered by the Egyptians so they could obtain his wife, he schemed with Sarah and he persuaded her to claim that she was his sister rather than his wife in order that his life might be preserved. Now, this was not an outright lie. Abraham repeated this deception again. And in Genesis 20, verse 12, as he explains it to Abimelech, he says, She is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Sarah was, as well as being Abraham's wife, his half-sister. It was what you might call a half-truth. But Abraham was using this half-truth, which was a lie, to cover up the central fact that she was his wife. And it's very hard for us to imagine being so desperately poor or afraid that we would willingly subject a female member of our family to sexual liaisons in order just to survive economically. But this is where Abraham was. It was a hard and tough place to be. Jeremiah 18, though, there's a lesson in the beginning of this chapter which the Lord taught the prophet. I'm sure you're all familiar with it. Jeremiah, under the guidance of God, was instructed to go down to the house of the potter. 
And there he watched him make something with his potter's wheel. And on that rotating wheel, from a formless mass of clay, he worked and he moulded it into a vessel that was fit for sale. And it was nearly finished, but we're told there was a defect within its shape and structure. Verse 4 says, The vessel was mad in the hand of the potter. And so, Abraham, this great man of faith, whose form and moulding up until this moment had been perfectly shaped by God, was now mad by this lie. His logic had driven him by fear and not by faith in God. The unpleasant choice he took was not the same, though, as having no choice at all. His fears seemed to have made him forget his trust in God's faithfulness, which just a short while before had been so strong. We do have to be fair, though, and consider that possibly in the back of his mind, he was trying to keep God's promises alive. He was thinking, if I'm killed, how can God's promises be fulfilled? But whatever the case, he was far more confident trusting in his own efforts to preserve his safety and security than he was in trusting the provision of God. The famine had exposed the fears of his heart and caused him to forget that the God he served is far greater than all things. And when fear grips our hearts, we often wander into a mess of our own making. Look at how the situation develops in verse 14 and 15. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Things unfolded exactly as Abraham expected. The Egyptians saw she was beautiful, but then things took an unexpected twist. The Pharaoh heard of her beauty, and he took her into his royal palace to be one of his wives. Whatever schemings, whatever plan Abraham may have had, this was entirely unexpected and now it was entirely dashed was his plan. He was powerless to act against this king. Events had completely spiralled beyond his control, as often the consequences of our sin do. Coveting leads to theft. Lust leads to adultery. Anger leads to murder. The vessel was mad. And surely it's the moral dilemma he faced between trusting in God and being honest or relying on man's logic and being untruthful that we see the point of this particular story. His dilemma reflects mankind's fallen nature. God's people, they are not perfect or sinless. We all have our own failings and shortcomings. The Bible only points to one man who is without sin and led a life of spotless perfection. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to him that every other life is compared and contrasted, and it reminds us of our own sinful failure and a need of a saviour, something that the martyr Stephen starts with in his last great sermon. He starts in the Old Testament and works all the way through these great figures of faith, pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham was just another fallen man 
who himself was also a sinner, who could not save anybody from their sins. When the Jews asked Jesus whether he was greater than their father Abraham in John 8, verse 58, the Lord Jesus Christ replied, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was claiming his deity. He was greater than Abraham. Just consider how we see this in the contrast of their two lives. Abraham lied in order to save his life. Whereas the saviour of the world, he told the truth and was condemned by a corrupt court. So Abraham's experience, therefore, it points us forward to the sufferings of Christ and the Easter message that we will shortly be celebrating. God doesn't have to look at his people and see our stumblings and all the times we chose the wrong paths instead of having faith. What he looks upon instead is the glorious perfection of his son, who, despite being sinless, despite being without fault, allowed himself to be put to death at the hands of man in order to redeem a people to himself. God, when he looks down upon those who have repented of their sins and sees his people, he sees within them, even though they are fallen, even though they still stumble like Abraham, within his people he sees the sinless perfection of Christ. And Philippians 2 verse 9 says, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. In our lives, We are bound to face extreme difficulty and trying situations where everything seems to be at stake. At times, the great promises of God's help and protection and the future inheritance that we will receive in the new heavens and the new earth seem to be a dim and distant reality. The heavenly Canaan is so far away from the here here and the now of this world. And in this reality gap, between the promise and the fulfilment of the promises, we are constantly fighting the temptation as Christians to use the world's solutions and fixes rather than relying upon our faith in God. But as we remember at Easter time, Christ's resurrection, the one of whom the scriptures point to, is our guarantee that his promises are true and that he will help us in these times. John 16:33 These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation but be of good cheer I have overcome the world And so we see as our third point the intervention of God into this sorry situation Abraham found himself in a mess of his own making, lost and out of his depths, unable to retrieve the situation. He seemed to have destroyed God's purpose for his life. The image was mad. But let's return to the story of the potter found in Jeremiah 18. It doesn't end at the beginning of verse 4, like I stopped at earlier. When the potter saw this mad image... Rather than taking a fresh lump of clay, the potter took this defective vessel and he began to reshape it 
and remould it back into the beautiful vessel that he had always intended it to be. In verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came to me, the prophet, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. There was still a glorious and blessed hope for Israel, yet despite their current sorry state, God was still going to use this nation at their time of backsliding, and he was still going to bless them. And this is what we have to see in the life of Abraham at this point. The vessel was mad, but God could take him and turn him into something else. He was still fit for God's purposes. His folly and sin could not stand in the way or prevent the direct promise that God had given that he would make of him a great nation. When God binds himself by a covenant to mankind, it cannot be broken by the actions of mankind. Even as the Lord Jesus Christ hung on the cross, seemingly a pathetic, despised, and forsaken, forlorn, and a beaten, humiliated saviour, this was always the plan of God. He had not been defeated by the plans of mankind. And although we fail and fall and slip into sin, the Lord remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. Above and beyond the course of human history, he sits in glorious majesty in the heavens, fulfilling his eternal purposes and plans, bringing sinners and those who are broken, those who are mad, into his kingdom. And the way he will do this will often come as a surprise to us. In verse 17 it says, The Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. These plagues and pestilences, as we will see here, are all under the control of Almighty God. These things are sent to make people think, to draw them to his will and his ways. And it's the wise man who submits himself before the Lord. And even though he cannot see why they come, he glorifies him and seeks to know what he would have him do within his life. Somehow it was revealed to Pharaoh that the cause of all his problems was because he had taken another man's wife. He was living in adultery. Verse 18, Pharaoh called Abraham and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. He confronted Abraham. And his anger and his indignation at Abraham's deception is reflected within these verses. And the silence and lack of response from Abraham indicates his shame and his embarrassment. And so it was, they were thrown out of Egypt. It would not have shocked us, would it, if we had learned that Pharaoh, in his justifiable anger at Abraham for the suffering that had come upon his household and his person, had perhaps thrown him in jail, or had even had him killed. Yet the hand of the potter is evident for us all to see in this section. 
Even though Abraham was at fault, God still intervenes for his people. The line of the seed was in jeopardy and God would not allow this to happen because his promise was binding. God's salvation can never be compromised or ruined by man. Despite the best efforts of the devil... Because his strategy goes far beyond human weakness and failure. Abraham could not prevent it. Later on, Esau could not prevent the line of the seed as he tried to kill Jacob. Nor could Pharaoh as he tried to wipe out all the Hebrew boys 400 years later in Egypt. The redemption plan of God and his promise first given in Genesis 3 verse 16 to draw a sinful people back to God through the birth, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, could never be destroyed, despite the best efforts of Satan and man. God's vessel was being remade and remoulded. And in the midst of his failure, God blessed Abraham and he prospered him. Verse 16, we're told... Pharaoh protected and treated Abraham well for Sarah's sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. And as he departed Egypt after being protected by this man, this wealth remained with him. Chapter 13, verse 2, we read, Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. After leaving that country, even though he had sinned, even though he had fallen, he left with provisions to survive and more. Provisions to survive and thrive as he returned back to the promised land. Despite Abraham's stumbling, the Lord had remained faithful to his promise. And this is what we see in this chapter. Abraham had failed, but the Lord God never fails. And neither do his promises, which ultimately have all been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen, to the glory of God through us. So as we reflect upon this great truth, let's draw some comfort from this passage. Despite our own shortcomings, despite our sin and failure... God's will and eternal purposes cannot be thwarted. Perhaps it's your experience at the moment. The vessel is mad. But lift your eyes from the things of this world and remember the Lord who is in control. This passage should humble us when we see how gracious and how merciful the Lord is to us when we deserve punishment and wrath at our shortcomings. Here we see the love of God, the love he has for his people. While they falter and fall, he protects them, he guides them, he continues to shelter them. And the fact that throughout Abraham's uh, failings, he was continuing to work all things for his good, should be an encouragement to our faith and our obedience. The Lord God will take the broken things of this world, the things that are damaged, the things that we would throw away, and he can turn them into something far greater. So we've seen 
the new trial and test for Abraham's faith. We just saw how he distorted the truth into a lie. And then we see the intervention of God. And in these strange and difficult days, may we rely on his leading and guidance. May we not seek our own strength, but wholly trust in his ways. Amen.